Welcome back to another episode of Summer Snooze, Season One, Episode Two. Why do we itch? My beloved girlfriend once asked me this question while she was furiously scratching at one of her limbs, and to be honest, I had no idea what the answer was, and it's always bothered me. Why do we itch? As I'm sure it bothered her in the moment, and so I think this is something that, for the sake of science and for my general well-being, as well as her general well-being, that we figure out today in this episode of Summer Snooze. Season one, episode two. Why do we itch? All right, let's get this party started. So, in the medical world, an itch is also known as a prurritus. It's a general sensation that arises from the irritation of skin cells or nerve cells associated with the skin. It's annoying. It's frustrating. If you scratch too hard, you bleed. It sucks. I think that's the general consensus, but it's actually similarly to touch, pain, vibration, cold, and heat, a very important sensory and self-protective mechanism. Itching lets us know that there's something harmful on the surface of our skin. For example, like if we drop some chemical on our skin, like the itch or the sensation immediately tells us like get rid of it.、Um, but if it Is overdone, or if there's sort of overstimulation, it can be extremely unbearable, as we all know. So, an itching sensation of the skin arises because of the stimulation of proreceptors. Proreceptors are these itch-sensing nerve endings. These nerve endings are stimulated by a few, by two, by three basic groupings:、uh, mechanical. So, like action or touch or whatever, thermal, heat, cold, whatever, or chemical, just like the chemical stuff stuff I mentioned earlier. So, in terms of like chemicals, we have chemicals for immune response, like histamines and pain relief,、um, neuropeptides, which sort of send pain regulating messengers from the brain、um, to 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 the brain to re- release endorphins and whatnot. Neurotransmitters such as acetylcholine and serotonin, prostaglandins, which are lipids that sort of will create the sensation of pain in spinal nerves. So the stimulation by sort of any of these things, as well as including, like I said earlier, touch or heat, will sort of will lead to inflammation, dryness, or damage to the skin, mucous membranes, or in the case of the eye, the conjunct the conjunctiva. So the actual action that goes on in、so、the actual action, the mechanism of action, is that the activation of proreceptors of specialized activates specialized nerve cells called C fibers. C fibers are identical to those associated with the sensation of pain. However, they're actually different、um, functionally and in act in actuality, and also they are the ones that actually convey that in sensation. So these C fibers are what actually telling your brain like, "Hey, we're itchy." They're they comprise about five percent of the total C fibers in human skin, and when these specific C fibers are stimulated um, superficially, um, they carry signals along the nerve to the spinal cord and to the brain. And then the brain will then think, "Wow, I'm I'm really itchy right here."、Uh, 
um, and so on and so forth. Scratching and then and then rubbing or any form of mechanical motion to sort of for us to alleviate said scratch, um, interfere with these sensations that come from these proreceptors um, by basically stimulating various pain and touch receptors in the same area. So like basically we're like distract we're like trying to disrupt this process that the C fibers are doing by sort of basically creating or simulating pain and touch to just sort of like um, interfere with the action that these C fibers are doing. And so while it is helpful to scratch to relieve the itch, it only functionally offers a very temporary relief, and that's something we all know very well, and actually can cause the skin to become even more irritated and then potentially get scratched up or torn, up, torn apart, torn, which would actually open the body to infection. Nobody knows exactly why that is good or why like we would want to scratch. Um, and even after a century of research on why on itching, there hasn't been actually a single effective um, anti-itching treatment. So we have anti-itch creams, we have anti-itch lotions, and we also have drugs that help us reduce the risk of itching and all that. But we actually don't functionally have um, any form of drug that specifically can target itching as a whole itching as a whole so that answers the question of like what is an itch and then after this quick break we're going to try and answer why do we itch well like what's the purpose and so stay tuned and we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors So the question someone really was asking, and I don't want to deviate too far away from it, is why though? Why do I itch in a random location on my body at a random time? There's no chemical there, Richard. There's no difference in heat. Nothing's touching it. Why? Good question. And that's really the question I, was, I sought out to answer. So after months of research, uh, I went to the library and dug around. I opened a book for the first time since freshman year. And I found two possible theories. The first theory. Occasionally, because the itching mechanism, right, the mechanism of action for an itch is so closely related to pain that sometimes when dead skin dies and falls off the surface of your of your body these receptors detect it and then send an itchy response to your brain which triggers you to scratch which triggers you to fully remove all that dead skin that's one theory but personally i don't know i don't know if that's it because like you, you know dead skin falls off of you all the time right like your mattress gets like 20 to 40% heavier because of all the dead skin cells and sweat that's just inside of it. Um, our air is like mostly dead skin cells because it's just slowing off like all the time and we don't itch all the time. But, and also, you know, so like that's not like the definitive answer. Okay, what about the second theory? Well, the second theory is focused on sensation because our brains 
as magical and amazing as they are, they are actually overloaded with information. So much sensory data is always, always, always transferred to the brain. And your brain does a great job of, you know, filtering it out. Or you'd be overwhelmed all the time, right? Like, for example, if you take a deep breath, you can feel your lung capacity. You can feel your lungs expanding. You can feel the pressure on your chest. You can feel the expansion. You are capable of feeling all those things. And, and all the time, you're breathing all the time, and you can feel it all the time, but you don't actively feel it, right? If you're laying in bed with a blanket on the top of you, you're always feeling the weight of the blanket, the pressure on your skin with the blanket, the softness of the blanket, but you're not consciously aware of it, right? And so itching kind of comes into play where it's like, oh, like occasionally maybe, say it was dead skin, right, slowing off, or say it was like maybe like something just barely brushed, a hair on your on your arm or something like that. It could trigger a small sensory response, which however get, becomes sort of outsized for the true response that it is. Like the filter doesn't do it, doesn't kind of like not, I wouldn't say fails for a second, but like it creates an overreaction to a small action. That's another theory. Um, don't know if it's true. There's no definitive proof. And there's also like no, you know, definitive answer to um to this question mm, you know so maybe that's something that modern medicine can definitely answer we do have a good idea like i said early in the earlier segment like exactly how it works like exactly how these um, receptors work and like how this signal kind of travels up to the brain and how it's interpreted um but we definitely don't know exactly why it ra it's random and I, I maybe i think it could be honestly a combination of both theories like it is very possible that to help encourage, you know, skin coming, dead skin coming off the body, your your brain triggers these sensations, definitely. Or like when like the next layer of dermis, of epidermis is having a hard time showing itself, maybe you scratch a little bit to help it speed that process up. You never know. Um, but I do definitely know that if you do have a bug bite, and if you, or if you do feel, or if you do have like recently a scratch or something, it is still not good, very not good, very... <laughs> It's, it's discouraged to scratch because when a mosquito or a bug lands on you, it could be carrying different types of diseases and scratching the surface really opens up your body to infection because the skin is the first layer of protection on the human body. So that is why we itch. Um, long answer to a short qu question that still ended up with a big, we technically don't know. So. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, so now we're going to move into the history section. Um, Summer, if you're still awake, hello. I love you. And um, let's get right into it. I think this was going to be a fun, a fun history section. Um, but I know the uh, the intention is to help you fall asleep. But I would stay tuned because this history section coming up is um, it's pretty wild. <laughs> I would say that in my time at college, I might have gone to a party here and there. Um, these parties were pretty fun. Some got pretty wild. They definitely did questionable things. But I think nothing I've ever experienced, I don't think anyone's ever experienced, what really 
how the ancients threw down. So today we're going to be talking about eight um, of the world's wildest parties to ever happen. Number one, the Egyptians. So we all know that the Egyptians, you know, they, uh, they're known for their hieroglyphics, their big pyramids. But we definitely also were able to dig up some of their dirty, dirty past. According to archaeological research at the Temple of Mutt in Luxor, the ancient inhabitants of the Nile River Valley had a raucous festival of drunkenness. This festival occurred once per year during the 15th century BC reign of Hatshepsut. It was a very fun party, but it also had a religious component. It was inspired by a myth about a bloodthirsty warrior goddess named Sekhmet. This goddess nearly destroyed mankind before, before she drank way too much beer and passed out. So she, for, she forgot to finish the job because she got way too drunk. And so in the, in the festivity, festivities played out as a massive debauched party. So every year, the Egyptians, to reenact their salvation, would spend a wild evening dancing to music, engaging in casual sex, like just everywhere, drinking themselves into a stupor with beer. And the festivities would only stop till the next morning um, where they would be awakened to the sound of drums. Number two, the killer party. On January 28, 1393, the French queen, Isabeau of Bavaria, hosted a lavish banquet at Paris Hotel Saint-Paul to celebrate the marriage of one of her maids in waiting. The highlight of the evening was supposed to be a dance involving King Charles the 10th, 11th, and five nobles. Each of these nobles was clad in a woodland wild man costume made from linen, flags, and oakum fibers. Shortly after Charles and his man began their routine, however, the king's brother, the Duke of Orleans, arrived and drunkenly approached the dancers with a lit court torch. Unfortunately, he moved a little too close, accidentally igniting one of their resin-covered costumes, triggering a blaze that instantly spread to the rest of the group. King Charles avoided injury only after a quick-thinking aunt covered him with her skirt. A mother, another man saved himself by diving into a tankard of wine, but four other dancers were engulfed in flames and killed. Damn, what a wild killer party. Now let's talk about something in Asia, shall we? The, the, the Manchurians uh, the Manchurian Empire, um, Han Quanxi, hosted one of China's most, how to say, thickest banquets. First stage in 1720, the Manchu Han Imperial Feast Edathon was ostensibly a 66th birthday party for the Qing Emperor Kangxi. Wow, that's actually a very famous emperor too. It was also an attempt to sort of bring the Manchurian population and the Han population together. For three whole days 2500 guests drank non-stop wine stuffed themselves silly with over 300 unique dishes and snacks dumplings duck roast pigs fattened with porridge 
and the whole menu began to even offer a bunch of really weird dishes known as the 32 delicacies. Inside these 32 delicacies could be anything from bear paws to camel humps to nests to bird's nests to leopard fetuses and even monkey brains. This feast, it was the height of imperial opulence. And it was so popular that it was later copied so many times during the Qing era. This sort of like multiple course meals, all these small dishes, to even to like sort of inspired some of China's more ritzy restaurants to this day, where they will still serve multi-course Manchu Han inspired feasts. Number four, the Shah of Iran blew $175 million on his birthday party. In 1971, a multi-day banquet was held to celebrate the 25th hundredth anniversary of Cyrus the Great's founding of the Persian Empire. This elaborate birthday bash was staged in the shadow of the ancient ruins of Persepolis. As part of the preparations, the Shah erected an oasis tent city adorned with 20 miles of silk, flew in food and chefs from France, and imported 50,000 songbirds. The 600 guests, who included Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie, the Prince and Princess of Monaco, and more than 60 other royals and heads of Swiss state, dined on roast peacock, quail eggs, and sampled 5,000 bottles of vintage champagne. In between meals, they took in firework displays, dance performance, and a parade that featured soldiers got costumed as great armies from Persian history. The celebration was supposed to signify the greatness of the Shah's regime. He even had a document in a propaganda film called Flames of Persia, but it ended up being the last gasp of Iran's millennia-old monarchy. By the end of the decade, growing discontent saw him overthrown in revolution. Number five, let's talk about something that happened in the Renaissance, shall we? When King Henry the third, when King Henry the eighth of England and King Francis the first of France hosted a joint summit in 1520 in a valley near Calais, they were supposed to be nurturing friendly relations between their two nations. What happened instead was a competition in party form. So they basically were like, you know what, you suck. And then King Henry the eighth was like. We don't suck. And so basically, they partied off. The banquets featured elaborate tanks and pavilions, meat from over 4,000 lambs, calves, and oxen, and fountains that literally spewed wine. The highlight was that near its conclusion, when the two royals finally squared off at an impromptu wrestling match, apparently, Francis reportedly threw Henry to the ground. That's, that's kind of a rumor. Despite its steep price tag, it supposedly drained both nations' treasuries. The party failed to sort of bring about an era, an era of friendship. By 1521, England and France were once again at war. Capote's black and white ball, apparently, was the party of the 20th century. Fresh off of his best-selling book, in, in Cold Blood, Truman Capote hosted a much-publicized black-and-white ball in the Grand Ballroom of New York's Plaza Hotel. Held in honor of Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham, the soiree 
brought together what the New York Times called a spectacular group as have ever been assembled for a private party. Its eclectic 540 people guest list included crooner Frank Sinatra, novelist Ralph Ellison, actors Lauren Bacall and Henry Fonda, artist Andy Warhol, Italian princess Luciana Pignatelli, and members of the affluent Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, and Astore families. Capote decreed that all revelers must arrive wearing masks and they must not be removed until midnight. And everybody celebrated with dancing and 450 bottles of vintage Tettinger champagne. A tense moment occurred when author Norman Mailer challenged former U.S. National Security Advisor McGregor Bundy to a fight over the Vietnam War. But most of the guests later remember the party as a truly glamorous affair. Now, this wouldn't be a party podcast, if we party history podcast portion, if we didn't talk about the Romans. Oh boy, the Romans. Scholars will still debate what exactly happened with the Pachanalia, Romans, Rome's cultic celebration of the wine called Bacchus, or Dionysus um, to the Greek. But if historian Livy is to be believed, even a little bit, there were some of the ancient world's most decadent parties where, and he, this is apparently a quote, where wine, lascivious discourse, night, and the intercourse of the sexes had extinguished every sentiment of modesty. Then, debaucheries of every kind began to be practiced. Bacchanalia first came to Rome via Greece, and they reached their peak. This was, um, I, I need to, actually need to preface this. this Bacchanalia is actually a, a, a cult. Um, and they had these orgies. Okay, Legendalia first came to Rome via Greece, and they reached their peak sometime in the second century BC, when their initiates included people from every level of society. Members of the cult would reportedly gather in private homes or in woodland groves for all-night orgies of dancing, animal sacrificing, feasting, drinking, and sex. Details of the rites are kind of sketchy. They Livy does claim, though, that they may have involved murders and poisonings, but there's no doubt that they scandalized certain factions of Roman society. Fueled by rumors of the excess that occurred at the Bicinalia, the Roman Senate famously voted to suppress the celebrations in 186 BC. Now, this wouldn't be a podcast about history and parties, about in history, and we don't talk about my boy, Andrew Jackson. Number eight, Andrew Jackson's first inauguration literally almost killed him. They say that president inaugurations are supposed to be, you know, formal affairs, very presidential. But on March 4th, 1829, swearing in of Andrew Jackson nearly turned into a drunken disaster. After giving his inauguration speak, Old Hickory retired to the White House which was hosting an open reception to allow the public to greet their new commander-in-chief. Before long, the executive mansion was crammed with thousands of rowdy well-wishers, some of whom who climbed atop furniture and knocked over glassware in their struggle to catch a glimpse of the celebrity president. When Jackson's staff tried to control the rabble by serving alcoholic refreshments, that's a dumb move anyways, the scene only grew worse. 
Chaos abated after the tubs of whiskey punch were moved to the White House lawn, but Jackson was forced to flee to a nearby hotel to be avoid to avoid being crushed by his supporters. <laughs> Pretty funny. So that is the history section. I really do hope that while it was very fascinating, I'm sure it was something that you could maybe fall asleep to. Um, and so. With that, I shall let you go to bed. Once again, this has been another episode of <laughs> Summer Snooze. Good night, honey. I love you. Mwah.